Uh, if you've got a Bible, could you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? Uh, we're taking, uh, we're going to begin a new series soon, but the first two weeks of the year, two weeks I think, uh, we're going to stop off and look at the Beatitudes. I thought they'd be a good way to begin the year. Uh, Matthew 5 and verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 12 over the next two, possibly three weeks, depending on how we go. Uh, They seem like a good place to begin as we start a new year. So I'm going to read from verse 1. I'll read all the way through, but today we'll be looking primarily at the first four. So children, we're jumping in here. Jesus uh, has begun his public ministry. He's grown up now. We did some of the Christmas stories before, well, before Christmas. He's grown up now. He's been baptised He's called the first disciples and he's just gone up a mountain and he's begun to teach them. This is his first really big teaching that he's given. So let's hear the voice of our saviour. Chapter 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, send your light, uh, we pray, into our dark hearts and our dark minds and show us, uh, we ask, your mercy, your glory and show us too how might we, walk, we might walk in your footsteps. Do this, we pray, by the power of your spirit uh, in whom we utterly rely. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, a new year. Uh, dawned last night. I don't know how many of you can be bothered to stay up. I went to bed about nine o'clock. Uh, sign of middle age, uh, although I was then kept up by fireworks till well past midnight. So I imagine we're all somewhat groggy after uh, a Christmas period. Uh, I don't know if you're a New Year resolution type of person. I definitely am not. In our family, um, to my horror, uh, two or three days ago, I was staying at my, my wife's family. Uh, we were all sat around in the lounge, and someone, I can't remember who, definitely not me, came up with the bright idea of giving the person to our right a New Year's resolution. Okay, pretty savage. You do not want a New Year resolution given to you by your in-laws, I can tell you. Uh, but, but if more generally, I was to say, what are your hopes for 2023? Okay, what would you like this year to look like? Children, if you look ahead, what would make this a brilliant year? In fact... Why don't you expand that out? What what would make a a good life? What does the good life look like to you? Perhaps you're living it at the moment. Okay, you're really in the sweet spot. 
A few years ago, you had various dreams, hopes, aspirations, perhaps the husband or the wife, the career, the house, and they've all fallen into place. And right now, you are in that sweet spot. You are living your best life now. The Instagram influencers taking pictures of your life, that they would see that, yeah, you've got it made. You might not be a billionaire, but you don't want to be. You're where you want to be. For others, perhaps, you feel like, frankly, you're, well, everything's fallen apart. Life isn't in full color. It's, it's black and white, that the music is minor, not major. It's raining as they film the scenes of your life. And you've got dreams, if only. If only he or she would say yes. If only the bank balance would increase. If only a few more people would take an interest in me. If only the pain would go away. If only... What does a good life look like? As we begin a couple of weeks looking at the Beatitudes... Uh, The key word, pretty obviously, as I read it, I wonder if children, you notice it, the one that came time and time and time again, it is blessed, blessed, blessed. Now, there are actually two words that end up as blessed in our English New Testaments, two Greek words, children, the New Testament is written in Greek. And sometimes, well, you can't quite, you can't quite sort of translate them directly into English in a way that kind of shows the difference. So these two Greek words both end up as blessed when you come to English, uh, but they're slightly different. Uh, one of them is, is the kind of word, we get it in Ephesians 1, um, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in every way with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It is the kind of blessing that means God is favouring you. Okay, the very word is about kind of God favouring you. But, but that isn't this word. This is a different word, makarios for those who are interested. This is a different word. It, it's more a word about almost flourishing. When you read the, the genuinely clever people, the kind of commentaries and the people who really understand languages, and they, they really struggle to translate it. In fact, one of them, who's a sort of notable academic, you know, he's got more PhDs than you've had hot dinners, he ends up saying it's something like good on ya. <laughs> okay. That's an academic really stooping to try and stretch for a right word. But, but it's to do with flourishing. I think perhaps the most helpful way to think about it is that when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, it's getting confusing now, isn't it? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew children, but, but at one point they translated it into Greek because lots of the Jews were speaking Greek. Then when they translated Psalm 1, blessed is the man. They used this word, this same word that Jesus is using here in the Beatitudes. The reason that's helpful, or at least I find it helpful, is the picture in Psalm 1 goes to speak about the man who meditates day and night on the word of the Lord, who doesn't uh, spend all his time walking around with with scoffers and sinners sitting with them, but instead he meditates day and night on on the word of the Lord. That man is like a tree planted by streams of water. It flourishes, it's fruitful. And when the word blessed is applied to that man, it's this same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. It's, it's a word that is, is kind of about flourishing, the, the good life, if you like. This is the sign that things are going well. Now, of course, if things are going well, if you're flourishing, ultimately, it's going to be a gift of God. So the two words aren't totally separate. But, but what Jesus is doing in, in the Beatitudes is describing the good life. It might be helpful 
uh, two, just sort of by way of introduction, to, to think about the contrast between these two blessing words. The first one, the God speaking well of you, approving you one, has an opposite, bless, and the opposite is curse. If you know the Bible story, you might know it lots of times, blessings and curses are put as opposites. At one time, the people of Israel go up a mountain and they call blessings and curses out to one another. But this blessing word, the opposite of this blessing word, the matching pair, is not curse, but woe. In fact, later on in in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23, Jesus will pronounce woes that kind of mirror these blessings. And woe, children, you know that woe is kind of, oh no, woe, it's awful when, it's that kind of word. And so the blessing is the opposite. Oh, it's going well when. In other words, what Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes is the kind of, the kind of life that's meant to make you say, ah, oh, yes. Children, do you have things that make you go, ah, oh, brilliant. Okay, maybe you've been out playing football, you're muddy, you're cold, you come in and mum's run a really warm bath. Ah, perfect. Ah, that's great. Okay, sausages and mash. Ah, yes. It's that kind of idea. Here is the flourishing life, which, of course, ultimately meets with God's approval because it is Jesus, the son of God, who is speaking these blessings. So no totally hard and fast difference. But it is helpful, I think, to understand that what Jesus is saying here is this is what a flourishing life in my kingdom looks like. Two things very simply this morning. First of all, that good life. The good life is a gift. The good life is a gift. This is verses one and two. There's a set again. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. What's going on as we, we begin the Sermon on the Mount is we're being given all sorts of reminders of the Exodus. Two particular things point us to the Exodus, the speaker and the setting. Let's think of the speaker first. Who's speaking these words? Well, it's Jesus, of course. We know that. But if we'd read through Matthew's gospel, rather than just diving in at chapter 5, we'd see that Jesus has been presented to us in a particular way. Okay, the colours Matthew uses to paint the portrait of Jesus in Matthew 1-4 to were well, colours borrowed from the Old Testament and in particular borrowed from the story of Exodus. But the life of Jesus is meant to remind us of, mirror, the life of Moses. Children, I wonder if you can remember the life of Moses very well. Remember, what the, what's one of the first things we learn about Moses? The very first thing, in fact. When he's born, do you remember, Pharaoh tries to kill him. There's a wicked foreign ruler who tries to kill him. What's the, one of the first things that happens to Jesus? There is a wicked foreign ruler, Herod, who tries to kill him. Uh, time goes on. Uh, what happens to Moses? Moses has to go into exile. A bit later in life, he tries to get killed again. He goes off into exile. One of the first things that happens to Jesus, he goes off into exile. His parents have to take him down into Egypt. Uh, eventually, he returns. And as he begins his public ministry, again, this is all in Matthew 1 through 3, 1 through 4, sorry. He, he comes to begin his ministry by coming into the Jordan River. Why? Well, because when Israel, or sorry, when Moses leads the people to begin the kind of great rescue, he comes through the Jordan. Sorry, through the Red Sea. It's a big crossing. And after Moses leads the people across the Red Sea, what does he do? 
he takes them to Mount Sinai. What does Jesus do as he's been baptized? He's come through the Jordan. He's gathered a people. What does he do? Well, he takes them to a mountain, verse 1. Now, they're not exact matches. As I said, it's more like impressions. But, but it is clearly there that Jesus is being pictured as, as a new Moses. In fact, throughout Matthew's gospel, that pattern will continue. You might know there are five main blocks of teaching in Matthew's gospel. The sermons aren't just sort of peppered here, there and everywhere. There are five of them, which is almost certainly meant to mirror the fact that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. On and on we might go, but there are parallels. Jesus is like a new Moses. Now hold on to that thought. At the moment you might be thinking, well, who cares? Just hold on to it. Think Exodus. The speaker, but also the setting. We've alluded to this already. Where are we? We're on a mountain. Why does Matthew bother telling us we're on a mountain? Well, as we've said, it's meant to remind us of Mount Sinai. The place where God's covenant people in the Old Testament gathered to hear how they were meant to live after they'd been rescued. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is going to have lots of echoes of the Ten Commandments. Uh, You know, as it goes on, uh, Jesus will say, you've heard it said, do not murder. Where have they heard, do not murder? (laughs) Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Where have they heard, do not commit adultery? The Ten Commandments. All sorts of parallels between the two. Now, why does that matter? Why does that Exodus setting matter? Because, because we need to understand the purpose of the Beatitudes, indeed the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount in general. That this sermon is not going to be all about how to behave in order that God will save you. Rather, this is a sermon telling you how to behave now God has saved you. Just like with the Exodus Again, children, you remember, God didn't come to the people of Israel or send Moses to the people of Israel as they were slaves and say, if you live like this, then I will set you free. No, he set them free. Then he brought them to the mountain and taught them how to live. So too here. Here is Jesus, the saviour. He's gathered his people. As my new people, this is how to live. So the Beatitudes, when we look at them, are not, they're not kind of, if you do this, then you will earn this reward in a really kind of mechanical way. Again, John, have you ever seen some, you know, those vending machines, like a chocolate machine at the swimming pool or something? You, you put in a pound and you choose, I'll have a Mars bar, you know, F7 for a Mars bar or G6 for a boost. Put in the money, press the buttons, out comes the reward. The Beatitudes are not like that. So look at the first one. It's not... If you do some being poor in spirit, then God will reward you with the kingdom of God. So you push in the little, look at me, I've been really poor in spirit, God. And he says, well done, here's the kingdom of God. Uh, It's not, uh, if you look down to verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. It's not if you stop a fight between your brother and sister. God says, well, well done, you can be one of my children. Reward given in fact while we're at it uh, the beatitudes are not separate values at all it is one package as you like it's not as if one one characteristic leads to one reward and another another not just because they're not vending machine kind of 
promises. But also, if you look at the first and the last Beatitudes, they promise the same thing. Blessed, verse 3, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are a package. It's not possible to be poor in spirit whilst, without also being merciful. It's not possible to be someone who mourns without also being pure in heart. So if they're not vending machine promises, push in this and get out this, what are they? Well, the good life is a gift. God has rescued you. Jesus has done everything for you. And these are, therefore, first of all, descriptions of what the Christian life should look like. These are characteristics of disciples. They're therefore encouragements. When you look at your life and see some of these things, we'll look at them obviously in more detail in a moment, but that should encourage you. And given that quite a few of these things are not strength and power things, I hope this morning will be a real encouragement to you. The descriptions, they're encouragements, and, and therefore, too, they are, if you like, invitations. Okay, this is the life of blessing, says Jesus. So press into it more and more. Now, if, as we go through this morning, you, you look at these Beatitudes and think, there is nothing, nothing in my life that could possibly be described as being poor in spirit, as mourning, as being meek, as hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That means that the answer is not going to be try harder at being meek. It's going to mean going back to Christ and asking him for that gift of salvation or growth in certainty of knowledge of that salvation. But we'll return to that in time. The good life is a gift. Don't hear this as law, do this and get reward. But as a description as an encouragement, as an invitation on how to live the good life in the year, indeed the decades ahead. The good life is a gift. Secondly, the good life is about begging, not buying. Begging, not buying. This morning we look at the first four Beatitudes, really. People have tried to divide them up in all sorts of different ways. I, I'm, I mean, partly I'm just not very good at this, but also I partly I just, just think sometimes it's a bit of a kind of fool's quest people get really excited about how to divide bible passages up okay maybe i'm just rubbish at it so i sort of you know get skeptical i think there's often loads of ways you can divide bible passages up and we get really sort of het up about it in ways that don't matter at all but for our purposes over the next two weeks we're going to divide it um, into into two sets of four of the main beatitudes verse 11 is kind of like the bonus one there's really eight four and four and i think there is some justification in that split if you look at the first four, so that's verses um, uh, two through six, they're all really ones uh, that describe a state of being, and they're all kind of pointed upwards towards God, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Whereas the next four, they're a bit more horizontal, merciful, that's about how you treat other people, peacemakers, um, surviving persecution. The first four, also all, they all begin with P, believe it or not, at least in Greek. And so we're going to deal with these four that, that kind of basically point upwards this week. Whilst totally acknowledging there's lots of ways you might split up the Beatitudes. Let's look at them. They all describe, I want to suggest to you this morning, a life of begging, of emptiness, 
rather than a life of buying from God. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's say straight away, it doesn't mean just being materially poor. It may be that you are materially poor, you don't have much money, and you're poor in spirit. Equally, you could not have much money and not at all be poor in spirit. And neither is it to do with kind of low self-esteem. Oh, uh, you know, I'm totally useless, me. You, you don't want to give me any jobs, I just mess it up. I'm a terrible person, no one likes me. I, I, it, that's not what poverty of spirit is about. Many of the Beatitudes link back to the Old Testament. We won't have time to look up all the references. We'd be on an endless quest flicking through uh, the Bible if we did that. But in Psalm 34, David, King David, can call himself a poor man. This poor man cried out to you. Now, David wasn't materially poor. He was a king. Couldn't get much better in Old Testament Israel days. And yet he was still a poor man. This poor man cried out to you. Uh, Why? He's not describing a poverty of wealth, but, but a spiritual poverty. He is aware of his sin, of his emptiness. He doesn't consider himself a kind of spiritual superhero. Uh, rather, he realizes that before the Lord God, well, he is nothing. Uh, David will go on to talk about being saved out of all his troubles about the importance of taking refuge uh, in the Lord. David knows that the strength is not in him, but in God. Perhaps the easiest way to get at some of these Beatitudes is is to give some examples. Uh, Who would be someone who is poor in spirit? Well, Jesus told a story once about two men who went into the temple to pray. One was uh, a Pharisee. John, he was a very religious person, very pleased with himself. Uh, He always went to the synagogue on a Saturday. He said his prayers. He was smart, upstanding, married to just one wife. Uh, Looked after his kids, gave money to to the temple to care for the poor. He he was a good guy and he knew it. Uh, He went into the temple and prayed, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this man. I'm not like others. And Jesus says it's as if he was gesturing to the second man who went into the temple second man was a tax collector. A tax collector is not just someone who's a bit annoying because they take some of your money. A tax collector would be a betrayer in the days of Jesus. A tax collector was someone who was working with the Roman government to tax his own people. So imagine you're in Ukraine now and you start working for the Russians and taxing your fellow Ukrainians to give money to fund Vladimir Putin's regime. That is what a tax collector was in ancient Israel. It's not just a sort of pantomime bad guy. This is someone who they would have looked down on with disgust. And she says, this man went into the temple and prayed. He, he couldn't even look up to, to where God symbolically, symbolically dwelt. He, he just looked down. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a very short parable. And the punchline is this. Jesus says, it is that man who went home justified, right with God. Not the Pharisee who was so pleased, who thought he was full, who thought he was somebody before God. 
But the one who knew he was empty, who just asked for mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he went home at peace with God. The Christian gospel is that sinful. The Christian good news is that sinful. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God says, come to me and I will forgive you. <laughs> Perhaps you're very conscious this morning of something in your life that is not right, something that makes you burn with shame. Perhaps you're conscious that you've just ignored God all this time. Well, the good news of the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is that you don't need to fill yourself up to come to God. You don't need to sort yourself out. Rather, he comes to you and says, no, come empty. And yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is eternal life. Yours is forgiveness. When you die, yours is paralyzed forevermore, peace and rest. Not because of anything you bring, but because you're empty. And I've given you the gift of forgiveness, of mercy, of eternal life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 4. For they shall be comforted. Again, I don't think Jesus is speaking primarily about those who mourn over the, the, the death of a loved one. That is a particularly painful example of mourning. But again, it's those who mourn primarily over their bankruptcy. So they've got nothing to bring. I can't remember the, uh, which carol it is, but one of those carols you sing, I think it's mainly one of those ones you sing in sort of primary school, like Little Donkey or something, one of those slightly naff ones. But um, the, the one that talks about, you know, what, what can I bring? Yeah, the wise men brought their gold, Frank said, what am I going to bring to God? Well, the good news is you don't have to bring anything. You don't have to bring anything. You can be someone who mourns over your sin, who realises you've got nothing. It grieves you. And Jesus says, blessed are you. There is the flourishing life. There is the life that God approves of. Is sin causing you pain? Anguish? Blessed are you, said Jesus. Are you aware of how low the candle is burning in your heart? The flame of love for God? Does it worry you? Blessed are you, says Jesus, as you begin 2023. Blessed are those, verse 5, who are meek. Meek's not a word used much at all nowadays. It's used in the New Testament primarily to describe Jesus, often translated to humble. So when Jesus comes, your king, humble, riding on a donkey, meek, riding on a donkey. Or in those wonderful words in Matthew uh, 11, that we began the service. Uh, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Literally meek. It's the same word. Again, it's, it's hard to kind of really tightly define the difference between the, the, you know, all four, but I don't think you're meant to particularly. Here is a humility, a lowliness, not a kind of grandstanding, but a realisation of our poverty. We are little people, to use the words of one commentator. Blessed are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness here, I, sometimes in the Bible, righteous, we talked about this a lot last term, 
Uh, righteousness means that the status of being right with God, which of course is a gift, it's given. It's about being justified. God declares you to be right with him when you put your trust in Jesus. Well, certainly we're to hunger and thirst for that. I don't think that's primarily what Jesus is talking about here. I think it's a desire to live a holy life. I think it's that kind of lived out righteousness here in particular. But notice if you're starting to panic and think, well, just a minute, do I really live as holy life as I should? Notice that it's a hungering and thirsting for something, not a possession of it. Hunger and thirst suggest you realize there is a lack. Children, when you're hungry, it's because you haven't got enough food and you want food. When you're thirsty, it's because you haven't got enough drink and you want to drink. Well, so too here. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the super holy, blessed are the ones who never do anything wrong. But rather those who wish they were living better, desiring it. So we look at all four together. Perhaps the parable that sums them up best is that of Luke's gospel. Where Jesus speaks about a father with two sons. Again, children, do you remember the story? The two sons, the first of whom goes to dad and says, look, give me my inheritance now. I'm bored. I don't want to stay on the farm with you. I'll have half your stuff. And the father gives it to him. And he leaves. And he goes out partying, drinking, living the high life. He's slept with everybody he can get his hands on. He has had a whale of a time in his own eyes. And then he realizes it's not worked. He's still not happy. He's followed his heart to its heart's content and The rivers run dry. He's had every opportunity to do everything you could possibly want to do. And he's empty. And so he thinks, well, what can I do? He's left eating pig swill in the story. And so he thinks, well, if I I head back to my father and I really, really grovel. If I say to him, Father, I've, I've been wicked, I've been awful, just, just, let me, just let me be like a slave in your household. I can't be a son again, I realise I've ruined that, but just, just, let me, just let me live in the back door. I'll, I'll muck out the, the, the animals, I'll, I'll sleep in the sheds, just, just, just let me be a slave. I'm really, really sorry. And he practices his speech and he, and he walks home and he's practising the speech and his father sees him and starts running towards him and so the son breaks into the speech, Father, I'm, I'm so sorry if... Look, I've really messed up now. I wonder if I could possibly... And the father just cuts him off and embraces him. Welcomes him home. What has the son brought? Nothing. He's poor in spirit. He's mourning. He has no righteousness to bring. But the father embraces him. It is emptiness. We're to be beggars, not buyers. Says Jesus, that is what the healthy, flourishing life looks like. Martin Luther was a great reformer. The last words he wrote before he died. So confused that he wrote half in German and half in in Latin. He wrote, we are beggars, this is true. And that's a great summary of the Christian life. And it's great news, we're beggars. That's all we need to be, we're beggars. This is true. The Sermon on the Mount... Is great news to those who are living in the valley. In fact, it leads you into the valley to realise you don't have to be something. So two people as we close. The confident, first of all. Those of you who are picturing the good life, either because you're living it now or you're pretty confident you've nailed life. 
that kind of, ah, yes, I've got it. Does it match onto Jesus' description of the good life? Or are all your dreams and hopes and aspirations entirely focused on the here and now? The good life. Blessed are those who get married. Blessed are those who find a a guy or a girl. Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the promoted. Blessed are the thin. Blessed are the fast. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are... That's what the world says to us, doesn't it? Succeed. Be full. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, that's nonsense. You don't need all that stuff. In fact, Jesus warns us in one sense that that path is a road to disaster. To the confident, perhaps we need to realign our aspirations, our hopes for 2023. To head in saying, Lord, make me someone who's more poor in spirit. I'd love to be someone who mourns more. How about that for a goal for 2023? Again, not moping, not crying all the time, not unable to smile and be happy, not unable ever to laugh. That's not the idea at all, but grieving over my sin rather than hmm, complacent. The confident and finally the crushed. Blessed are the poor, the empty. Blessed are the beggars. If you feel far from God, if you go into 23 limping, not running, you ended last year not kind of storming through the tape like the marathon runner, arms aloft, but kind of dragged over the line then here's good news for you. Jesus wants not full hands full of gifts for him, but empty hands to receive what he has given. As we're told later in the Bible, he who was rich became poor for your sake. On the cross he became totally empty, was treated like someone with nothing, took your sin in order that you might empty-handed be able to come to God and receive blessing, whether for the first time today or the hundredth. You do not need to bring anything, nothing in. My hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. How are you going to begin 2023? Come as a beggar, not as a buyer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we are spiritually poor, not spiritually rich. We're aware we've not lived as we should. We're so quick to puff ourselves up and yet we realize we have nothing to boast of and so we praise you that your love is so great that you've given us everything in Jesus and we pray that we would see the good life to be the life that Jesus describes would you grow these virtues in us more and more again not so we can be proud but so that we might know your grace and see your greatness more and more I pray for anyone here, even today for the first time, who has seen their poverty before you and your kindness in giving. And pray that you would give them that gift of eternal life, forgiveness that is free to all who ask and will turn to Jesus. Bless us in this way, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.